In Atlanta, one voice has stood out for over four decades. An AJC original, The Monica Pearson Show. Let's talk about how you got to ESPN. Revealing interviews. You are known as America's doctor, but I want to know who you were before that. When you have a different name, you have different color skin, it can be tough. With Atlanta's most famous faces as you've never seen them before. I'm telling my story. This is the American dream. The Monica Pearson Show, streaming now on AJC.com. Hip-hop is a product of black people. It's a product of black song and celebration. The Atlanta Journal-Constitution presents... Hip-hop's most pulled elements are pulled from the South. A Southern hip-hop story. We always go back to that moment of the Source Awards. Everybody wants your rhythm, but they don't want your blues. The biggest names in hip-hop. Atlanta is still the mecca for hip-hop. 50 years. No one can deny... One film. The power of the South now. The South got something to say. Streaming now at AJC.com slash hip-hop. It's the Georgia legislature's last dash. Hello and welcome to Politically Georgia. I'm Greg Bluestein with Patricia Murphy, your co-host. And we are two of the political insiders here at the AJC. We release new episodes every Wednesday and Friday. And a reminder, if you have not done so, please subscribe to the show on Apple, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcast. So Patricia, yet another busy week, setting up yet another busy week. Where were you up to? I was in uh, Fayetteville with David Perdue, seeing him on the campaign trail. And then I have been spending a good bit of time at the Capitol because, as you said, it's the waning days. And I consider it the most wonderful time of the year because there's so much going on. Yeah. And I consider it the most wonderful time of the year because um, the legislature goes home. (laughs) (laughs) We have different opinions on that. (laughs) I think a lot of of lawmakers are ready to get out. And I think maybe um, the less time they're in the Capitol. (laughs) For sure. The less shenanigans that go on. But you're right. This is a very (laughs) crucial time right before the end of the session and a lot of actions happening. Um, I was at the Capitol as well. I was in Athens. I was doing some book propaganda um, all over uh, covering campaign trail stuff as well. Coming up, Patricia will be back to dig into what David Perdue had to say and the impact, if any, that Trump's visit is making on his campaign. But first, we want to start with the final push at the legislature before Signy die on Monday. Let's welcome to the show our ace legislative reporters, Mark Nisi and Maya Prabhu. Okay, guys, this is an expansive question, but what are you watching these final days? Mark, let's start with you. Well, we have so many bills up in the air, and it's going to be late nights um, right up until the deadline. I'm looking at the big, what used to be the big elections overhaul bill. Now it's a small elections (laughs) overhaul bill. Um, They shrunk it from 39 pages to two pages and took out every controversial provision, but that could still come back. There There could well be provisions of that bill added back in before it receives final votes. In particular, um, on the House side and in the state budget, there are provisions to have the GBI handle some election investigations if they so choose. So that's one area in particular that could be added back to that bill. Because right now, all the bill does is give workers additional time off from work if they want to vote beyond election day. Currently, you're allowed up to two hours on election day to take off to vote in coordination with your employer. This bill would 
also give you time off if you choose during three weeks of early voting. And that's all the bill does now, but that could change in a heartbeat. I'm also looking at medical marijuana. Um, you know, that program has been stalled for quite some time now, and there are so many different proposals to try to get it started, either trying to immediately issue licenses as soon as in May or start over from scratch um, with a whole new competitive bidding process. And ultimately, patients are demanding medical marijuana um, that they've been waiting for for seven years since Georgia allowed them to consume mm -hmm. it, but not to buy it. Um, other bills, we have a Facebook and social media bill that would prevent them from censoring posts based on viewpoint. And that bill is kind of stalled in committee, but it could still move ahead. And then everybody's favorite bill, the bill that would uh, prohibit regulation of leaf blowers. Um, it would prohibit cities and counties from cracking down on gas-powered leaf blowers, which have been the subject of complaints from people who say, they're too loud, I'm working from home and I can't hear. But of course, the leaf blower lobby, the companies that do landscaping and agriculture are fighting for protection so that cities can't try to crack down on leaf blowers. We've seen that in places like Decatur and Athens, where it's been discussed that maybe they should try to regulate gas-powered leaf blowers. You know, and before, Maya, we get to what you're watching this legislative session, this final days, let's get to something that Mark just mentioned about how big bills can get from big to small and maybe big again. A lot of stuff happens these final days and, and it ain't over until that final gavel bangs, maybe late Monday night, maybe even early Tuesday morning after signing die. Yeah. You know, there are a number of ways that that can happen. Uh, a bill can be gut and replaced in committee. They can... Um, completely wipe out what's in the bill, take the language of another bill um, and and replace it in the Rules Committee. Since this bill is on the Senate side, that can only happen in the Rules Committee at this point for that elections bill. Um, you know, rule, the Rules Committee has the ability to amend bills in the Rules Committee before they hit the floor. They can also try to do the same thing on the floor. It happens less often, but it's there are still attempts every year uh, to get and replace a bill or to tack uh, another bill on the end of a bill that's supposed to be in the same code section, though that is sometimes questionable. Um, yeah, so that those are the, the two main ways that people can kind of sneak related or unrelated legislation or change legislation at the last minute. And that is why reporters have to be on guard because lots of last-minute maneuvering happens. Maya, um, you, you've been you've been unbelievably busy because it looks like every single major issue you've been covering uh, this entire session is now coming to a head. What are you most closely watching these these final few days? So you know, I would say you know I listen to Mark's long list of things that still need to happen. I would say I'm I'm fortunate in that a lot of my big issues are pretty much settled. Um, very thankful for that. Um, so we have, um, I think right now, as we're recording this podcast, there is a bill regarding medication abortion that would ban doctors from sending prescriptions to women seeking medication abortion, abortion pill, uh, without, like through telehealth without having to go in and they can send them through the mail. It's a federal regulation that the Biden administration um, put in place because of the pandemic. He made it final in December. And um, now they, uh, you know, states are trying to keep that from happening, keep doctors from being able to prescribe the abortion pill without seeing, uh, you know, a pregnant woman in person. Um, so that 
was a last minute <laughs> addition to an agenda today. Um, and then another bill that, you know, may be languishing um, would um, regards uh, transgender youth sports. Uh, it would require it so that students could only play in sports that were that aligned with the gender on their birth certificate. And so a lot of uh, folks in the LGBTQ community um, are pushing back on that. We don't really have, uh, we're not aware of a lot of transgender um, children playing youth sports in Georgia, but uh, legislators here and, and other states are, are uh, trying to make sure that that doesn't happen. So that made it out of the Senate. It's kind of sat in the House, um, but technically there are committee meetings committee meetings over the weekend. Um, so anything's possible. Yeah. And that's one of the governor's main election year issues. He promised in the state of the state speech to, to pass something along those lines, although he didn't give it much specificity. So we'll see how that goes. And another issue, Maya, I know you've been watching is gambling. We're still, I guess the jury is still out. All bets are off. Uh, Annie up any, any sort of gambling uh, joke you want to oh make, but oh it's been gosh. a perennial issue. It's been for years and this this year, Speaker Ralston actually indicated this might be the year. And now we're at the final stretch. And, uh, you know, it still looks like there is um, some significant opposition in your chamber in the state Senate. Yeah, the Senate passed last year legislation um, that would put a question on the ballot asking Georgians if they believed gambling should be expanded to include sports betting. Um, it kind of languished, uh, not to use the word again, but it kind of uh, had a lot of false starts in the House last year. Um, we're a two-year session, so they brought it back this year. Um, just, you know, a few days ago, voted it out of committee, but added, you know, made it so that all gambling would be legal. Um, and that is a non-starter in the Senate for sure. Um, because earlier this year, they voted down horse racing. So, you know, the other types of gambling that folks have been trying to pass uh, for the past, past several years are horse racing and casino gambling. Um, I think they thought in the Senate they might have had the votes to get horse racing out. They did not. It failed on the floor. And um, so the idea of trying to send something from the House across to the Senate that would allow all gambling in Georgia is just kind of funny. Yeah, and this is the time of year, too, where you see message legislation, legislation that might not go anywhere, isn't really intended to go anywhere, but is intended to be something that folks talk about on the campaign trail and maybe even to rile people up. And we saw that with the film tax credit. There was legislation that capped those those lucrative credits that we all knew wasn't really uh, destined to, to reach a final vote, but it did clear a committee and got a lot of traction, or at least talk out there, and then it was immediately stripped. Uh, Mark, when we look at the the, the totality of the legislative session, because you and I have covered this legislative session like no other reporter. You've been there from through thick and through thin, late hours, early mornings, weekends, you name it. Um, what do you think the defining trend of this legislative session has been? The defining narrative, maybe. There always seems to be one bill that inside this building people talk about. And this session, it's been the mental health bill that Maya has been covering so closely. And now that that has passed, that's the big thing that 
the big obstacle that needed to be cleared before anything else could be done. And of course, other things were being done. But now, in these final days, we're going to see votes on things like income tax cut. That's a big one that is still coming and still subject to a lot of negotiations. The budget, we already got through the supplemental budget, but we still have next year's budget that has to get through um, before the end of the year. And, you know, a lot is still up in the air. This is a time of chaos at the Capitol when you never really know what's going to happen and what's going to come up. But compared to some prior years, this year's session especially after there was an agreement on that mental health bill and leading up to it, there was a lot of consensus building and discussions that had to take place among Democrats, Republicans, House, Senate, leadership, and backbenchers. Everybody had to kind of give and take a little bit, and they all decided to play ball this time. You know, Ultimately, they reached an agreement, and it passed unanimously in the House and Senate, and that was a big step forward in terms of legislators being able to talk to each other and to get along and not to hold so many bills hostage and not to try to get revenge on their peers by voting against other bills. So you know, at this point, it isn't as angry of a session as I've seen in some years. But on the other hand, it is an election year where legislators are trying to do something that they can define themselves by on the campaign trail, whether that be educational issues or whatever it could be. You know, education, gun rights is another big one. Mental health, as as I said, is a big one that legislators will talk about. And elections mm-hmm. and voting rights are always significant in an election year. You know, you, you talked about the mental health bill. That could have really gone the other way. You know, you, in, in another legislative year, you could have seen, um, you know, gridlock. You could have seen an ending in nothing passing or something watered down. You could have seen an ending in all sorts of infighting. Maya, I want to ask you the same question. Uh, what do you think the sort of the defining narrative of this election year legislative session is? You know, I was speaking with um, Riley Bunch from GPB, and she said this is kind of like the session of cooler heads prevail. And I think we're seeing that in some instances, right? So that happened with um, the mental health bill that may have happened with the elections bill. But then we also have some things that haven't gotten finalized with you know the idea of divisive concepts, right? CRT hasn't hasn't gotten a final vote yet. Uh, the idea of obscene materials in schools mm-hmm. hasn't gotten a final vote yet, and those are uh, Republican-backed issues that Democrats have fought hard against, saying that you know obscene materials is violating. Um, well, both at both both instances are violating. Uh, free speech of teachers and um, the ability for students to access materials that can teach them about the world. So I don't know. It's kind of been a hodgepodge. Um, We've had some instances of cooler has prevailed. And then we've had some instances of, you know what, we're going to do this, whether people, whether every single person who testifies on this bill is against it, we're still going to do it. So it's, it's been, you're right. I think hodgepodge is a great word, and we've seen very divisive debates on the legislative floors. We've seen Democrats, you know, <laughs> using curse words and getting upset about redistricting and about um, the gun expansions. On the other hand, you, we've seen a lot of unanimous action on, especially on that mental health bill, uh, a, a major victory for the Speaker of the House and for bipartisan uh, lawmakers. Uh, to me, I guess I, the, the defining trend is culture wars in the classroom. 
But you're right. The jury is still out on, on some of those major bills. So when it's all said and done, um, some of those significant pieces of legislation that you guys have been watching so closely might not make it across to the finish line to the governor's desk. Yeah, there was one bill that did uh, clear recently on the books, removing books that are deemed obscene. And that bill did clear and get through um, the legislature. And that would basically put the decision in the hands of principals rather than librarians. And it's designed to give parents a greater voice in being able to lobby and talk with their school leaders to decide what they feel is appropriate for their schools. Mm -hmm. But even that bill is not as restrictive as we've seen in some other states. So um, we'll see. You know, as as Maya mentioned and Mark, you mentioned too, there's a lot of bills that still are pending. And maybe one of the biggest ones involving schools is that transgender athletes bill that, again, the governor has made a priority. Well, stay tuned to all of their coverage on this very busy Friday over the weekend and on Sunny Die when an entire AJC team will descend on the Capitol from 9 a.m., 10 a.m., all the way through midnight because we might not have a, uh, we might not even have a midnight end to this session. Guys, thank you for joining us. Thanks so much. Thanks so much. Great to be here. This is Politically Georgia from the Atlanta Journal Constitution. Donald Trump has been indicted in Atlanta. We have so many court dockets to follow, but we haven't really seen anything yet. The Atlanta Journal-Constitution has covered every moment of this historic case. I've been writing about this investigation for two and a half years. Our team is led by reporters Bill Rankin and Tamar Hallerman. Follow our coverage on AJC.com and listen to new in-depth episodes of the award-winning podcast, Breakdown, The Trump Indictment, only from the Atlanta Journal-Constitution. Our journalists at the Atlanta Journal-Constitution are working around the clock to keep you updated on all the developments surrounding the Trump indictment. Now the AJC is putting all of our coverage in one place with our new Trump 19 newsletter. Every Wednesday, you'll have our latest coverage and analysis on this historic case in your inbox. So sign up for free today at AJC.com slash indictment newsletter. That's all one word. AJC.com slash indictment newsletter. Patricia, welcome back. So before we dive in to the next phase of this program, the jolt sets the agenda and the stakes in Georgia politics every morning. And you can only read it if you subscribe to the Atlanta Journal-Constitution. Go to subscribe.ajc.com backslash podcast and your first month of unlimited digital access is just 99 cents. That's subscribe.ajc.com slash podcast. You always know what's really going on. And Patricia, we've got a really good jolt coming Friday. Can you give us a preview? Because I know you've already written it. Absolutely. It's about catfishing season at the Georgia General Assembly. And you have to read it to find out what that means. So if you haven't read it this morning yet, people should go ahead and read it. And I take it it's not the catfishing in the sense of actually fishing in a pond. Uh, It's not what you think. It's not what I think. I I know what it is. So (laughs) I'm cheating. We want this to be the podcast you depend on for the most on-the-ground coverage of the 2022 governor's race, which is why Patricia went to Fayetteville to see David Perdue's campaign in action earlier this week. And Patricia, you asked him this key question from Trump's rally on Saturday. You gave a thumbs up to the group of people behind you on Saturday night chanting, lock him up, after you <laughs> talked about Brian Kemp. Yeah. Should Brian Kemp be locked up in jail? No, what I, no, I misunderstood them, actually. Okay. I really thought they were saying lock them up. Because okay. I, what I had said very plainly in my speech was that people responsible for this uh, malfeasance should be investigated and, and uh, brought to justice. That's what I said. I misunderstood what they were saying. So I'm, I'm holding uh, the governor accountable. Uh, I'll let uh, whatever happens after that happen. 
Patricia, let's be really clear. That was the most shocking part to me, at least of the rally was it was unscripted, right? It was uh, when, when David Perdue talked about uh, holding people accountable for the 2020 election, the crowd behind him starts chanting, lock him up, lock him up. It's very clear. It was lock him up in the audio being there in person. It wasn't, there was no, there was no mystery around it to me at least. Right. And David Perdue cheers, smiles, claps along and flashes a thumbs up sign. And in his campaign account actually retweeted you, he amplified your tweet, which clearly said the crowd was chanting, lock him up. So at least from the campaign's perspective, there is no mystery about what the crowd was chanting and who they were talking about. Yes. And I asked him that question at a press conference after his event in Fayetteville. So this is not something he said to the group of supporters there. It was just a follow-up question. And I think it illustrates how difficult this is for a candidate like David Perdue to, um, I don't consider him like a big time red meat bomb thrower, but that is what the Trump supporters want. They want, they cheered, lock him up. And then asked in a follow-up question, he said, oh, I'm sorry, I did not understand. However, he did say we should lock them up. Now that's also, you know, the obvious follow-up question to that is, Lock them up for what? 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 Ha- where's the evidence? Where's the body? Where's the proof that this happened and it has never been presented because it did not happen? So, um, it's a you know it's a real mixed message, but it's it's not a mixed message what the Trump supporters want. Um, and when I was in Fayetteville watching David Perdue, he was greeted with a a really big crowd. It was standing room only. There were people there wearing t-shirts that said Trump, uh, Trump won. Um, there were people also wearing jeans jackets and homage to uh, David Perdue. And I talked to one woman who said, you know, I used to not like David Perdue. I thought he was a rhino, but now I know he's just like Trump. And so that is where his support uh, must come from in this primary, but he needs to broaden it out as well. I think he understands that. And so when you get a follow-up question to why were you saying that Brian Kemp should go to jail, it's a little bit of a softer answer. Well, maybe not go to jail, just, you know, only in case he broke the law, you know. So it's, um, it was a really fascinating uh, trip to return from. I, I really went to see how does he interact with voters. And voters are there because they love Donald Trump. They are there because of that endorsement. And they now believe in David Perdue because of Donald Trump. You know, and if there's any question about what David Perdue is focusing on in the final months of this campaign, we've answered it, right? Look, there's other issues. Um, he's talking about Rivian. He's talking about slashing income tax. He's talking about Buckhead cityhood. But the 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 main issue, the the A plus 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 issue, the ace card um, in his uh, in his in his hold right now is Donald Trump, and he's using Donald Trump every chance he can get. It is the focus of his TV ads. Um, it is the focus of his mailers. It is the focus of his message. And I'm sure at that rally, just like every other event that he's held, um, it opened with Donald Trump's video endorsement. Because the only time I've ever seen him not open with that was when there was a malfunction at a uh, at a restaurant up in the Atlanta suburbs where they couldn't play that video. But every other time, he has opened with that video um, because that is his calling card right now. And we've talked about this before, but these next few days are really going to be the make or break moment for his campaign, right? For a long time, we've been talking about how, oh, there's still a significant number of, of Republicans in polls that say they don't know that Donald Trump has endorsed David Perdue. Well, now, if they don't know about it, it's on David Perdue, not on Donald Trump. He came and held a rally. He's taped multiple ads. He's had a number of, uh, of, of events where he's just highlighted 
over and over Donald Trump's support and got a lot of free media attention over that. So at this point, there should be a lot a widespread recognition among Republican voters that David Perdue has Donald Trump's endorsement. And now we're going to start to see if it matters. And if it doesn't start ch- changing his standing in the polls, then you can, it's not like he's going to drop out of the race or anything like that. Of course not. But you might start seeing, um, it, it might be harder to get Donald Trump to come back for another rally. It might be harder to get some of those big pro-Trump donors to pour in millions of dollars for outside groups backing David Perdue if he's still back double digits behind Brian Kemp. So David Perdue was asked after this event, "Will do you expect Donald Trump to come back? And he said, oh, he might come back for some tele-rallies. Uh, he didn't say that Donald Trump is definitely coming back. I'm sure Donald Trump is waiting to see how David Perdue does in the polls here in the next couple of weeks. Um, is he does he really look like a winner? Because we know there's nothing more that uh, Donald Trump hates more than Brian Kemp, other than a loser against Brian Kemp. That might be the only other thing he doesn't want to be associated with in Georgia right now. So we'll see if Trump comes back. Um, but to your point, yes, David Perdue did play. A Trump endorsement ahead of his uh, ahead of his own speech. It was almost like the introduction to David yeah. Perdue as here is uh, Donald Trump saying, I give him my full and complete endorsement. And so the people in that room were thrilled about it. But he said, listen, I know I'm preaching to the choir. I know that you guys are already for me. I need you to go out and tell 10 friends like we, you need to start to broaden, <laughs> broaden this coalition other than the people who came out to Fayetteville at noon on a Tuesday. And that is absolutely true. And when he but, you know, when he was speaking to the crowd, he did talk about eliminating the income tax cut, which, by the way, needs a little we got to kick the tires on that idea because it's very difficult and it means increasing other taxes. $14 billion dollars worth of revenue, right? Right. Yeah. Right out the door. And, that's a whole nother podcast. He talked about the woke left. He talked about Buckhead and Rivian. He talked about parents uh, having more control in schools. And people were like, yeah, yeah, okay. Um, but when he talked about the 2020 election and the 2020 election, he did not say was absolutely stolen, but they had all already heard him say that. That is when the crowd gets animated. That's what they care about. And so my huge question over these next several weeks is how many other Georgians believe that? How many other Republicans are still so hung up on the 2020 election that they're going to go out and vote against this Republican governor who is coming out of a legislative session with tons of wins and tons of conservative priorities to show them that, yes, I'm conservative too, even though Donald Trump's mad at me right now. Um, Where is the coalition to get David Perdue elected in this primary. That's what is unclear right now. And that's what we have to see in the next several weeks. And that's what Donald Trump is going to have to see in order to get back on a plane and come back here. And you're right. This really has been Brian Kemp's legislative session. Um, and it's been really never in doubt that his main priorities like gun rights expansion and a new school um, a new school related legislation would, would, would pass and get to the finish line and, and reach his desk along with the budget. But I'm glad you mentioned uh, Donald Trump's question about whether he's going to come back because not only did he say near the end of his rally that, hey, this better be worth it, right? He said, this better be worth it, David Perdue. You better not have wasted my time, essentially. Um, but you know, not long after, um, he talked with Real America's Voice and he had, he had something to say about David Perdue's chances. I endorse a lot of people that are long shots. Look, in, uh, we're fighting a governor who's done a very poor job in Georgia and a horrible job on the election. And hopefully David Perdue's going to win. I mean, that's, you know, these are not sure things. And if I lose one along the way, which you have to, right, they're going to say this was a humiliating experience. They'll make it like 
I could be 100 wins and one loss, and they'd make it sound like this is a humiliating situation. These are really dishonest people. So, Patricia, when President, former President Trump talks about long shots and then talks about David Perdue and then says, you know, some of my candidates might lose, uh, it sure <laughs> sounds like he's hedging right now. Oh, if you are in David Perdue's camp, you're like, what is he doing right now? Like that is the opposite of a vote of confidence right there. And listen, people want to back a winner. And if even Donald Trump is getting off the train and it was his idea in the first place, (laughs) that is a disaster. But let me tell you uh, what I've been hearing from uh, Republicans who are really worried. This was an kind of an earthquake in the world of people who are endorsed by Donald Trump right now. When he rescinded his endorsement for Mo Brooks in the Alabama Senate race, because Mo Brooks would not come out and echo every word of Donald Trump's um, allegations and lies about the election. Mo, Bru- Mo Brooks went just like a teeny bit squishy, wouldn't say that it was stolen. Um, Donald Trump took back his endorsement mm-hmm. after he had already endorsed Mo Brooks. And that has really sent a spike of fear into the hearts of people who support David Perdue, people who support these other candidates, that even when you've got Donald Trump's endorsement, it can be taken back at any time if you're not doing the right thing. And he's not with you, even if you're with him. And so for David Perdue, um, when you start to hear uh, Donald Trump's turn to kind of walk this back a teeny bit and, and, and even talk about losers in the same conversation about you... I mean, that is his his biggest weapon right now is Donald Trump. And if he's not going to have his biggest weapon in the fight, that's catastrophe. And we'll see where Donald Trump goes with this. But he is extremely unpredictable, as you know. And that's the problem with um, getting behind Donald Trump is he's not always going to be behind you. What Trump giveth, he can also taketh away. And the other cardinal sin that Mo Brooks did was he said, let's focus on 2022 and not on 2020. And I wasn't that surprised when after that, we started hearing David Perdue focus even more in 2020 and um, even say for the first time falsely that he also won the election against John Ossoff, that his that his race, his January 2021 runoff was also rigged in his view. Um, you know, to, to your point earlier, uh, David Perdue was also asked in Fayetteville how invested Trump remains in this race. To 100 percent. He is all in on this race. He knows that if we want a Republican conservative president in 24 and we want to get the Senate majority back this year, we have to have someone run against Stacey who can win. He knows, as I know, that Brian Kemp can't pull together all facets of this party in November. So, Patricia, you know, I get it. Um, even though Donald Trump sounds like he's backtracking, it'll be very hard, even with misinformation, that, oh, I never really backed David Perdue, whatever, whatever might come out if David Perdue loses. Um, it'll be really hard for him to avoid the fact that, you know, one of his endorsed candidates, one of his top endorsed candidates in the nation, you know, and then one of the most challenging races in what I view as the biggest test of Donald Trump's clout in the country, um, you know, is on the ropes right now, could, is in real trouble. And um, so you could see two things from Donald Trump. You could see him kind of double down and put money from his own super PAC behind David Perdue, hold other rallies, hold teller rallies, whatever those are, because I, you know, that's a new one to me too. Um, or you could see him kind of say, issue more statements like he did with, uh, with that far right media outlet where like, well, you know, I'm going to lose some, but I'm going to win most. <laughs> um, what, 
But the thing that I think is so fascinating also about the clip that we just played is that that is now David Perdue's message. And uh, I have not heard it a lot from him. He, this is although this is um, the first time I've spent uh, any time with him on the trail. Uh, so th- but this is the message that he's giving voters. Why am I running? I am running because in order to get a Republican president in 2024, Trump, and to get a Republican Senate and win the Senate seat in Georgia, Herschel Walker, and to get rid of uh, Mitch McConnell and Nancy Pelosi, I need to be the governor. I need to be on this ticket and unite Republicans. And so that is a way to tie himself to both Donald Trump and Herschel Walker, who are quite beloved in the base of this Republican Party, and uh, paint himself as I'm the road to Donald Trump in 24. I'm the road to Herschel Walker as a senator. Um, it's a little bit of jujitsu, <laughs> but it's uh, not the worst idea in the world because those guys are popular. And there are still some Republicans, uh, many Republicans in this primary, trying to trying to figure out what to make of David Perdue. It's funny you say that because the word jujitsu, I've used the word political jujitsu a, a few times and boy, does do our editors get upset. <laughs> oh, really? James Salzer, Kevin Riley, they always make fun of me. Why are you saying political jujitsu? But I love that term. Because um, it's like, hi <laughs> It is. And there's a lot, there's a lot of- um, Watch me. I'm going to exactly. do this. <laughs> exactly. Well, let's get to the next segment of our program, which is who is up and who is down. And Patricia, we touched on it earlier, and you might have the same view as me, but who's up so far to me? Governor Brian Kemp. He's up in the polls. He has a lot of money behind him. Um, He has uh, a 40-day legislative signing period where he's going to get even more attention. And as we both agree, this session has basically been his session. He's been able to muscle forward pretty much every one of his main priorities. There's a few still outstanding right now. We're not exactly sure how the transgender athletes measure is going to hold out. There's a few school related measures that are still out there, but his top priorities, the ones that he's invested significant political capital behind um, school masks, you know, giving, giving parents the option, whether or not to let their students wear masks, um, tax refunds, teacher pay raises, uh, the gun expansion, um, other school-related legislation, and and then frankly, also the mental health bill. Um, those have all gone the governor's way. Even if the latter, the mental health bill is more of House Speaker David Ralston, but he but Kemp also put his heft behind it. Um, so those have all gone Kemp's way, and these will all be tools for him on the campaign trail in just a few days. I completely agree. Um, although I have a, I have my backup who's up in case you also picked Governor Kemp. My other backup, uh, my other who's up this week is House Speaker David Ralston. Yeah. Uh, this mental health care reform package that got across the finish line this week um, was by far his top priority. This has become sort of his signature issue. It's the first bill, um, excuse me, it's the second bill in his entire speakership that he's actually put his name on. Um, now that actually attracted um, the resistance of some far-right activists, I think because David Ralston was pushing this. That is why we saw this last-minute misinformation campaign to bring it down. But he really marshaled um, his forces. Uh, this had been s- an effort so long in the making and so deep in reality and policy that it really uh Nobody was able to stop it. It got the vote of every member of the Georgia General Assembly, Democrats and Republicans, which is really something. And so it's a gigantic win for David Ralston, something he has said would be the most important thing he does in his career. Um, And he did it this week. So he's up. 
Yeah, that's a very good one. And it's a game-changing piece of legislation for Georgia families. And you're right. Unanimous vote is very hard, especially when the first votes actually had a few um, far-right conservatives in the House who voted against it. Um, Who's down to me? I'd have to say Donald Trump. Um, You know, he still attracted thousands of, of people to that rally over the weekend, but it was a far smaller crowd, far smaller than I've ever seen at a outdoor Georgia rally of his since his his since his 2016 election. Um, it was less enthusiastic crowd. Um, you know, there were people, you know, members of the crowd were agitated that they had to wait. Um, not only did they have to get there really early, but they had to wait several hours after the seven o'clock starting time for Donald Trump to, to finally start speaking. And um, people left early. Um, you could see people streaming out the doors long before Donald Trump finished speaking. And again, the, the the biggest thing that seemed to animate that crowd was 2020 lies. It wasn't any other policy issues. And um, and if and if you continue to see Republicans catering to that, it's going to be a just a tough general election campaign if the focus is on the rearview mirror and placating Trump once again, just like we saw in 2020 and 2021. Yeah, I'm going to give the um, seven members of the Donald Trump slate my who's down uh, this week because because Donald Trump is down. They're all down. They have all tied themselves to this man with a bucket full of chains. There is no way to get away from him at this point. Uh, it's their only hope of getting elected, with the exception, I'm going to say, of um, certainly Herschel Walker. I think he's got a broader appeal than that. Um, but there are uh, when Donald Trump is down, everybody with Donald Trump uh, in many ways is down. And for reasons that even his own advisors don't understand, Donald Trump has endorsed a number of people lower down the ticket who have almost no chance and are going to, I think, further erode the impact of those Trump endorsements if he starts to really rack up a bunch of losses when people's biggest chance of getting elected was his endorsement. And even with his election, I mean, even with his endorsement, they don't get elected. That will be a huge uh, mark on him that is going to reverberate for the rest of this election cycle. I'm glad you mentioned Herschel Walker because he's probably the only candidate of those seven who does not need Donald Trump's endorsement. He would be just fine without it. And that's why he did mention, well, at least that might be one of the reasons why he didn't even mention Donald Trump during his first speech out to that crowd. Um, We have a quick question from a reader. Lainey Weinheiser of Dallas. We always love our Paulding County listeners. She asked, how early do you have to get to there to a Trump rally? Um, that's a great question because we in the press, there's like a last call sort of doors close at 3 p.m. for a seven. It was a 7 p.m. start time for Trump, which really means more like 9 p.m. Because Trump, you know, a former president never goes on on time. Um, so I got there like at 2.57. <laughs> I got there right before... <laughs> The, the final call time because I already knew, you know, it took an hour and a half to get there and you have to get snacks because you're you're stuck behind a, uh, a security cordon. Yep. You're stuck behind a security cordon. So you don't have many. Um, and there's just a handful of food trucks and there's like hour long lines for all that food. So it is a big production. But yes, um, you're usually there for most of the day, which is probably why some of the crowd members were getting cranky by the end and leaving early because they had spent eight, nine, 10, sometimes, you know, 12 hours at those rallies. It's a lot to ask of Trump supporters. Um, Now, I think they enjoy it because it is a lot like a festival. It's like a fair at the very beginning. There's food trucks, there's um, music. It's a lot of people wearing the same kind of clothes. It's really fun. You're having a great time. But then, you know, to me, the more important question is not how early do you get there, but how late do you have to stay? And I mean, it is almost impossible to get out of a Trump rally 
if you don't leave early because there are this was actually a little bit of an exception, but there have been in the past so many people. Sometimes there are so many people that have to bust them in and out that we've gotten stuck in traffic for two to three hours getting out of there. Um, and how was your traffic getting out, Greg? It wasn't bad because there wasn't that many people there. Yeah, that's our barometer. That's our bit. Trump barometer right now. We're both used to having so many inter- internet problems. And Patricia, you even stayed back to make sure you could file. And you know, I didn't, this is the, one of the first rallies. I didn't have internet problems because there weren't that many people there. So I could actually get online. Well, that is about all the time we have for today's show. Remember, you can look back at all of our podcasts, including a podcast we had on the Trump rally just a few days ago. And you can look back at the making of the book Flip, which is out on all your bookstores, all your online retailers. Uh, it is the book I wrote on the Georgia 2020 election and the making of the state as the premier battleground state entire nation. And then uh, Bruce J chiming in here because we got a lot. Uh, we got a lot of great sports podcasts coming out, including when you're done listening to Politically Georgia, head over to the Hawks Report where Dominique Wilkins is our special guest, the NBA legend uh, with Sarah Spencer. Braves Report's going to be out this weekend, and uh, Doug Robertson's back with Southern Fried Soccer to preview Atlanta United's game uh, against DC United this weekend. I will be tuning in. Also, over the weekend, our colleague Maya Prabhu is finally publishing her best dress list. It's been the most eagerly anticipated item, uh, news article, whatever you want to call it, feature. Feature, that's what you call it. It's been the most eagerly anticipated feature in the AJC this entire year. I'm not kidding. Uh, people at the Capitol are asking me about it, so I can't <laughs> even imagine how many people are asking Maya about it. Maya, can you give us a taste? Is Mark Nisi going to, again, be the number one best dressed? The list is not ranked. It is not ranked. It is in alphabetical order. There is no favorites and no least favorites, except for the 10 who are the favorite that make the list. There you go. But at least there's not a worse dressed. What about a guy in khaki pants and a black golf shirt? (laughs) I'll keep that in mind for next year. Well, don't forget, please give (laughs) us the rating you think we deserve on Apple or Spotify so we can grow the show. We'll see you next week on Politically Georgia from the Atlanta Journal-Constitution. I'm Ernie Suggs, race and culture reporter for the Atlanta Journal-Constitution. And I'm Ned Ravone, lifestyle columnist. Atlanta has been known as the Black Mecca for so many years, but that means something different to everybody. It means everything to me. I've been living here for 24 years, and I am still amazed at how rich the city's Black culture continues to grow. Every day I wake up, I learn something new. Well, you all can learn something new by subscribing to the Atlanta Journal-Constitution's new newsletter called Unapologetically ATL. It's all about the people, the events, and the entertainment happening in Metro Atlanta that Black people might want to know about. Like historically Black colleges and universities. Atlanta's thriving art scene. And the city's growing neighborhoods. Wherever you live, we want to hear from you. We want to hear what issues are important to you. So subscribe today at www.ajc.com slash unapologetically ATL. Only from the Atlanta Journal-Constitution. Constitution.